My name is Deborah. I'm a writer who loves all things money. I'm Hui Yu, and I'm a financial advisor who wants to help you fall in love with money. And you're listening to Good Girls Talk About Money, the monthly podcast where we talk about how you can build a clearer picture of your financial well-being and be more confident about money in general. Hi everyone, welcome back to Good Girls Talk About Money. So usually, you know, there are two of us, Hui Yu and myself, you know, doing the show. But today, it's just me. Hui Yu is taking a break uh, just for this episode. But I have with me a very special guest, and that is David Bay, CEO of Mortgage Master. Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Money, David. Thanks for having me, Deborah. Hey, yeah. So, you know, before we kick off the interview, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what exactly is Mortgage Master? Okay, so um, um, of course, as 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 you've introduced, I'm the CEO of Mortgage Master. Uh, what what brought me to this journey to this company is because I used to be a banker, and um, as a banker, you have to sell your bank's products, whether it's the best mortgage today in your bank or not. You still have to sell it because it's your job, right? Uh, so in the end, I decided to start a company um, called Mortgage Master, and what we do is advise people on mortgages. We are not buyers, meaning that we have the mortgages from every bank at one place. And we will always find the needs and wants of the customers, put that first, and then find the best mortgage suited to their, to their needs, wants, character, personality, and stuff like that. Because, you know, the lowest rate may not be the best rate for you. That's what we do. We find out, we have to ask more questions, find out about the person better, and find a rate that's suited to that person's uh, risk level and, and needs. Lah. So... Exactly what is a mortgage? I know most of us probably uh, know what a mortgage is, but is there like a professional way of describing what a mortgage is? And, you know, given the high rate of home ownership in Singapore, do we actually lead the world in terms of mortgage loans? Okay, so firstly, mortgage. I didn't Google the definition, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but mortgage is, um, in my opinion, right, a mm-hmm. financial instrument used to leverage on your property. So mortgage has to come with property because it's an asset-based lending vehicle. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if you use your car, car is not a mortgage, it's just a car loan. So in my opinion, mortgage is just for property. So you can get a mortgage when you buy a house, obviously. You yep. can get a mortgage when you remortgage or cash out from a property that has increased in value or is fully paid. So that's where you get money from a property. Like that's basically a mortgage. I see. And like... Do you have any um, stats around whether Singapore, you know, where does Singapore stand in terms of mortgage loans? Do we actually have a um, relatively higher number of people per capita regarding like, you know, mortgage loans taken out? Okay, in- interesting, interesting, very interesting question because it's good and bad at the same time. So, you know, I will give you an example, right? So Mortgage Master is also in Indonesia. And in Indonesia, because the prices of property is in Singapore is just significantly higher than our other Southeast Asian countries, right? Mm-hmm. So in Indonesia, people normally f- finish paying off their housing loan or their mortgage within 12 years, 15 years, and then they will be left with no more mortgage um, unless they go buy their second property after that. And, and that is why 
in Singapore, there are more houses on a mortgage compared to our neighbours in Southeast Asia. But nice. that's a difference, right? I don't think it's a good thing to be over-leveraged right? in a, in a yeah. sense. Right? <laughs> but in Singapore, we actually have a very loan-to-value of mortgages, meaning that if I buy a million-dollar house, normally people will take a 750000 loan. That's the maximum. So that's a 75% loan-to-value. So in MAS, there's a quarterly report that actually says the loan-to-value of the average housing in Singapore is less than 50%, meaning most of the people in Singapore, their loans are less than half the value, Oh, which is a wow. good thing because it's not overly leveraged. Yeah. Nice. I mean, wow, just the thought of being able to pay off a mortgage in less than 12 years. I mean, I'm so envious of our neighbours right now. Well, their houses are about 10 times cheaper. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, but, the, you know, their income is also a lot lesser. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the same. La. Yeah, la, that's true. So, you know, um, I'm sure those of us who are thinking of taking out a mortgage or who have ever applied for a mortgage, right, uh, will be confronted with with terms like floating rate, fixed rate, cyborg, LIBOR, HDB loan, bank loan. I mean, what do they mean and how do they actually affect the mortgage you eventually take out? Okay, so uh, this is where we go full lecturing Technical. mode, right? <laughs> okay, so so if, if I'm telling like, okay, if Deborah, you don't have a mortgage and you are like, say, the first time you're getting a house and you have no idea, Yet you want to acquire, you're curious because some mm -hmm. people actually are not curious. Like, they just like, just give me the best of what you think is good for me. But I, I actually like to, I, I, all my guys in Mortgage Master, they like to explain because I feel, you know, you're putting your signature on something that is going to take like 25 years to pay off. Uh, you better understand. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> okay. So the first thing I need to mention is that um, there are fixed rates and floating rate packages. Mm -hmm. So fixed means... Like, for example, taking today into consideration, let's say you get a significant size loan, a million-dollar loan, you can get 1.15% three years fix. Mm. That means for the first three years, your rate is locked in at 1.15. It will not change, yeah. which is good. But for a one-mil loan, the lowest floating package in, in Sora is actually 0.95%, lesser than 1%. But Sora... And the floating package, right? Floating means it can fluctuate. It's, it's based on the whether Sora increases or decreases. Okay, so Sora today, or oh, a lot of numbers coming out, Sora today is 0.15%. Sora in 2018 was 1.7%. Mm. That means if it goes back to 2018 levels, it can increase by 1.6% interest, you know? So even if today you're paying 0 0.95%, if it goes back to 2018 levels, you will suddenly be paying 2.5% interest. So there's a risk involved in floating rates. Mm. And that's why fixed rates are higher than floating rates because you pay a premium for the safety of three years fixed. And the predictability as well, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So you but, mentioned Sora. Mm. What actually is Sora? Ah, okay. So I was going to say this, right? Mm. Even if you decide to take a fixed rate, you still must understand what a floating rate is. So now I'm going to dive into the different floating rates like Sora. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so in the banks, normally we have one, two, four kinds of floating rates as of today uh, that are used. One is, of course, Sora. So Sora is something that we are using. Sora has been around for a while, 
but it's going to be used for mortgages only since I think around March this year. So Sora has nothing to do with mortgages at all. Sora is actually the overnight lending rate that financial institutions use. So mm -hmm. your mortgage is packed to an external rate that is transparent and the banks cannot control. But there is a high amount of velocity and it can fluctuate up and down quite significantly. Okay. So what is the overnight lending rate? Okay, so imagine, I, I give you a, a very simple way to understand this overnight lending rate, right? Mm. Supposing I use a trading platform to trade the US market at night. Yeah. And trading platforms normally give you like maybe four times to 20 times leverage. Means if I put $1,000 in, I can actually trade up to maybe $20,000. Margin, that's a margin, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say I buy a stock. I, got, I put in $1,000 and I buy $20,000 worth of stock. The trading platform has to borrow $19,000 from me somewhere because the, the trading platform has to buy the stock for me, right? Mm. Or the FX for me. And the trading platform will borrow money to buy that for me. So when they borrow money, the next day is calculated. And then the average, the average amount of interest this, these trading platforms use in Singapore, that will be Sora determined mm. in the next morning. Because US market does obviously when all of us are sleeping, right? Yeah, so it, it's actually, Sora is literally the average rate of all these financial institutions, trading platforms where they have to borrow money overnight, um, the next day, the average interest rate. So it's a okay. very fair fair rate controlled by market forces. No mm. one can just tune it up and down as and when they like. Yeah, <laughs> super technical. <laughs> and. That's just the first of the four. Uh, Actually, it's the hardest of, of the floating. four. La, so. Okay. <laughs> so we started with the hardest one. Cybor mm -hmm. is something more easy. It's SIBOR stands for Singapore Interbank Offered Rate. So yeah. banks also have to borrow and lend money from each other. La, and that's literally the rate that banks use. Again, it's transparent because a bank that needs to borrow money from another bank, they cannot cheat each other, right? So you know it's a very fair rate. That's what Cybor is. Yeah. Uh, LIBOR is actually, CYBOR is Singapore Interbank, LIBOR is London Interbank, so it's uh, the London version of CYBOR. Mm. Right? Um, then the other, the last two is fixed deposit link rates and board rate. So fixed deposit link rates as Singapore Interbank offer rate CYBOR and overnight lending rate. So fixed deposit rates are, the mortgage rate is linked to the fixed deposit rate of the bank law. Mm. So if the bank raises their fixed deposit rates of what they pay their customers who put fixed deposits, your mortgage will increase. But if they reduce it, your mortgage will reduce as well. And that's where it's actually interesting because although this rate is controlled by the bank, because the bank can decide to raise and drop their fixed deposit rates, it's not market forces. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because if the bank wants to raise your mortgage rate, they have to raise what they pay other customers as well. So at least there's some Control. check and balance there. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, the last rate is what we call a board rate. Um, it's something which I do not like. I would not advise clients to take because a board rate is determined by the bank in totality. The bank doesn't explain how they determine the board rate. And sometimes it's really low, but mm -hmm. when it increases, it increases at a rate that is more than the rest. And I've heard and seen horror stories where a person getting like a 1.6% interest locked in for two years suddenly the bank increases the interest, the board rate by 1%, he's paying 26 and he can't get out because he's locked in. So 
I actually don't advise people to take a bought rate. And that is why even if you take a fixed rate, fixed rates don't last forever. So you mm. must understand what floating rate it becomes after the fix when you take it as well. Nice. So out of these four types of floating rate, right, what, what would be the most common one that we are seeing in the market right now? Today, we are moving towards Sora. So Cyborg has been around for the longest time, but MAS is phasing out Cyborg. So okay. by September this year, banks are not allowed to offer Cyborg packages. Mm. And MAS vaguely said in the next three years, Cyborg will be phased out. It means there will be no such thing as Cyborg anymore. And, and that's why um, the popular floating rate called Cyborg because it's transparent, it's being phased out and people are jumping onto Sora because it's quite similar. One is interbank borrowing rate. One is financial institution overnight borrowing rate. Kind of the same thing. Lah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I guess that would be for another episode, you know, asking why <laughs> MAS have decided to uh, phase out Cyborg. But moving on to our next question, right? Singaporeans, typically, when we are in our 20s, it's very likely that, you know, your boyfriend, you know, will ask, <laughs> hey, want to want to want to go and apply BTO or not? You know that kind of thing, right? So what a proposal, right? <laughs> I know, right? So the typical Singaporean in their twenties hoping to buy a flat, you know, what factors do they need to consider, and how should they actually go about navigating the property market, or is it really just a very straightforward method? You go to HDB, you apply for the BTO that you want, and then you pray and you pray that you get <laughs> you get selected for that BTO. Well, I mean, it's very specific question about like the young Singaporean couple that's mm-hmm. going to get married. Um, fortunately, in Singapore, most, most of the people here are very stable, meaning that they can choose their house first and then the financial aspects of everything just fall into place. Lah. So that's actually luckily because um, that shouldn't be actually the way. Mm-hmm. So I like, I like to say that you know, traditionally people find a home, then they find a loan. But, you know, a BTO or a HDB is normally lower cost because it's subsidized housing. So even if you do that, you don't really suffer because the financial aspects just fall into place easily. Yeah. But imagine if you can't get a loan. Okay, I'll give you a statistic. Huh? I've been mm-hmm. doing this for more than a decade already. 15% of people who bought a new house and asked me for a loan mm-hmm. actually cannot get the loan or do not have the down payment. Mm. And 15% is a lot. Uh. I mean, it's, it's a significant enough number. Yeah. So how do you prevent this from happening? You should find a loan first or at least talk to somebody like me who will, who will ask you. Actually, it's just three simple questions we normally ask, right? Mm-hmm. The first question is, um, how much loan can you borrow? So it's a simple formula. The government gave us the formula, literally. Your age, your income and your liabilities will then determine how much you can borrow. Mm-hmm. So... If you can borrow that much money, then you know you buy a house within the range of the amount of money you have. So let's say you want to buy a 400k HDB, mm-hmm. you can borrow 300k. Yeah. So, okay, that's first question sector. Second question is if you borrow 300k, you still need 100,000, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have the down payment? Mm, yeah. You know, if you earn combined income 6k a month, you can borrow 300,000 already. Okay. But then if a combined income, let's say, very nice couple graduated working for two years, combined income 6K, very believable. Mm. But do they have 100K in savings? I only work for two years. So that part is the second question. You may be able to get a loan, but you must make sure you have the down payment. Yeah. Because if you work two years, sometimes it's not so easy to save 100,000 in two years. 
you know. Even in your CPF, right? Correct, correct. Mm. CPF, let's say you earn 3,000 because, you know, okay, they earn 6,000 in total. So CPF OA is only 1,250 to 1,300 a month. Yep. Over 12 months is, <laughs> is, yeah. is yeah, it's 15,000 or something like that. And then you take two, it's just 30,000. You, yep. you don't have that yet. Mm. Yeah. So second question is whether you have the down payment. The third question, which is actually something that most people overlook and is the simplest question, in my opinion, is the most important question. Are you comfortable with the monthly installments? Because you can have the loan, you may have the down payment, but everybody have different needs and wants and, and how they want to live their life, right? Some people like to YOLO, <laughs> some people like restaurants. <laughs> some people, you know, it, example, I am married. Mm-hmm. And I have two kids. My expenditure, and let's say my family earns 10K and another couple's family earns 10K, I have two kids. They can afford a lot more in housing mortgages than I can because I have two children. So so it really depends how much you are willing to pay. So we can always, if you can answer these three questions, look, I can get the loan, I have the down payment, and then if I buy this house at this price, this is the monthly installments, and all of these three are comfortable, then go and buy. No problem already. And it also protects you. So sometimes when people walk into a show flat or their housing agent shows them houses mm. when they want to buy a house, right? If you're anchored by financials, you know you will not deviate from that number too much. But if mm. you're not anchored by answering those three simple questions, you can actually be you know, swayed by the emotion, the very nice house, the very nice location. And if you decided to buy 600K in the end, you may end up buying a $900,000 house. And that may... You can afford it, but it may not make your life comfortable after that. So it's good to, to settle the three financial questions. So when you look for a house, you're anchored by the financials. Yeah, I think that three question that you just shared is really, really helpful. I mean, I've gone through two properties myself and I've never actually thought of these three questions. So, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, these three questions are how much loan can you borrow? Do you have the down payment? And are you comfortable with the monthly installment? I think I think this is these these three questions are very good starting points. So if you're thinking of you know getting into the property market, uh, whether it's for the first time or you're looking at buying another new place, why not ask yourself these three questions, right? So moving on to the next question, one of the things that I'm always thinking about is like, should a person really try to pay off their mortgage in the shortest time possible, or should they stretch it to the maximum duration? Hmm, this is again a subjective question. It's yes and no differing hmm. from person to person. Okay, so first rule of thumb, uh, if you pay off your mortgage faster, you incur less interest and it's quite significant. I'll just give you a very s- small example and look at the amounts I'm talking about. Uh. A 300,000 loan because you bought a four-room or five-room flat. Mm-hmm. Okay, Just 300,000 loan, not one million, not two million. Uh. If you pay for 25 years, you're going to pay something like a hundred and thirteen thousand in um interest over twenty five years. In fact, if you reduce and you pay it off in fifteen years, immediately your amount of interest drops by like fifty thousand dollars, and and it's super significant. So okay, I have the exact numbers right now. Huh? three hundred thousand loan, you take a HDB loan yeah. over twenty five years, your interest is hundred and eight thousand. But if you pay just five years faster. It becomes eighty five thousand. You save twenty three thousand dollars. It's quite significant amount of money to save, 
So as long as your monthly installments can support, can be supported, you should reduce your loan tenor. So that's the first opinion I have. However, if you're talking about paying your your loan um, lump sum down, so there are some fortunate people in the world, maybe their companies give them $50,000, $100,000 bonuses for for (laughs) working, right? Mm. And then they decide to pay it down. Well, subjective. The rule is, if your money can work harder from you elsewhere, Mm. if I have no emotions involved, let it work for you elsewhere. So if I have, okay, I'm 37, I just bought a HDB. Mm. Quite expensive, $900,000. I took a 600K loan, but I have 200000 in my CPF that I'm not going to touch. Me and my wife. Lah. Why did I not take the 200K to pay off the 600K loan and end up with a 400K loan? Because CPF pays me 2.5% minimally and the bank loan for my HDB is only one4 so my 200k in the CPF is working harder for me than the cost of the loan. And also I noticed that if you use your CPF to sort of service your mortgage, when you sell your property, you have to pay back CPF yes. in a way plus interest, right? Yeah, they call it accrued interest. You are right. Mm. So, well, it really differs from person to person. Um, you're financially, mathematically, leave your money in your CPF and, and use it to pay your higher monthly installments is actually the way to go. But that is if I have no emotions because I do realize, I mean, being in this industry for more than 10 years as well, that there are people who just don't like having a loan. So mm. it's not a wrong answer. It's a person-to-person subjective feeling, right? So yep. if you really decide loan so much, then just pay off lah and then be mm. happy. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess it's, you happy can already. That's the most important thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, many Singaporeans are, you know, very lucky. I mean, considering all things, you know, um, a lot of us can become homeowners yeah. thanks to the fact that we can service our mortgages with our CPF. Now, for those yeah. of you who are listening um, and you're not Singaporean, uh, the CPF is actually called the Central Provident Fund. And a portion of our monthly income, you know, actually goes towards this... Um, savings account so to say and you know when you are when you reach a certain age retirement age then you can draw take money out of this account or if if not you can also use this money to sort of service your mortgages so you know in singapore we can do that but what are your thoughts on this and is it really a no-brainer that we should just use our cpf where possible because you know actually like you said right cpf is sitting in there you're not touching it whereas if let's say you use cash to pay down your mortgages your liquidity could suffer a bit and also you can actually use cash to invest in other things, right? So what, what is your opinion on this? Wow, um, this is actually... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say things which I will toe the line to politics, right? But I'm not <laughs> going to... I'm going to avoid politics because that's not why we are here. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say first is that, you know, this is on Wikipedia, on CPS website about us, right? Mm. CPF was created for a retirement scheme. It's literally pension, right? Mm. So the government forces you to put your money in CPF, but at a certain age, you can take it back out or you can take it out in small installments. That was in 1955. In 1968, so it was not immediate, 13 years later, then CPF can be used to buy houses because I guess the government then realized the policy making, not many people have the down payment. So, you know, let them use this money to down pay instead. Mm. It was not immediate. It was 13 years later. However, you know, you mentioned accrued interest in the last question. Yeah. Why do we use our money to buy a house? How come we have to pay back interest to CPF? Exactly. (laughs) 
Okay, yep. So this is my opinion. Huh? Don't hate me for it or don't like me for it, right? CPF was created for retirement purposes. Therefore, if you use your money in your CPF to buy a house, then you have to pay the interest that the government will have paid you because mm. it's for retirement. And that 2.5% is around inflation. So, you know, you save money. Is, is it really your money still, law? Yeah. Like when I sold my first property and then I got like the letter saying that this is how much interest I need to pay oh. back into my CPF account. <laughs> I got a shock because I'm like, wait a minute. Like something's not quite right here. Okay, right as in like the math isn't working out, right? If I yeah. had left my money in my CPF account, the government would have paid me interest on that, that you know, much. on that money. Yeah. But how is it that I am buying my own property, I'm servicing my own mortgage, and at the end of the day, when I sell my property, instead of, you know, instead <laughs> of excusing me from this interest, because at the end of the day, it's like my money anyway, right? Correct, correct. I am being asked to put in more money into the CPF account that, you know, technically I can't touch until what, I am 65? Is that the age right now? Correct, correct. Yeah, so so that was a little bit of a shocker for me because I'm like, hang on a minute. Why didn't anyone tell me <laughs> that if I left my money in a CPF account, I would have got, you know, I know I would have gotten interest from the government, but now that I'm not it's, getting it's that the interest, I interest still must that pay myself. <laughs> exactly. So I was a bit like, mm, okay, this this is, yeah, I, I kind of like, you know, I don't agree with it, but like, yeah. this is the system and I'm not, I'm not running for political office. So, you yeah. know, what can the rest of us mere mortals do, right? <laughs> but, you, but you see, so I'm trying to explain in most is an objective manner as possible, right? Because I also have my feelings on this. Mm. But objectively, it was created for your retirement. Yeah. So if you use it to buy a house, you have to pay back your retirement money that the government was supposed to give for you, law. I mean... Mm. By, by trying to accept this statement, it makes me a little happier because like, okay, you know, at least there's a reason. <laughs> Not yeah. no reason. Yeah. yeah Fortunately, guess, you yeah. can use that money to buy your next house. Lah, so it's not like it's wasted. <laughs> uh. Yeah, that's true. It's just that, you know, like, you just kind of like feeling like, you know, I thought I would have more cash on hand yeah, after selling yeah. my property, right? But anyway, moving exactly. to the next question, you know, recently I've seen a lot of interesting Facebook and Instagram ads, you know, telling me how I can get away with paying the additional buyer stamp duty <laughs> and own several private properties and earn great rental income. <laughs> what is that all about? Like, are these things even legal? But first of all, maybe you can tell our listeners what exactly is the additional buyer stamp duty. Okay, so when you buy a house, you have to pay stamp duties which mm. is in a tiered basis, 1% for anything below 180K, 2% for anything for the next 180K, 3% up to 1 million and 4% after that. All right. Mm. There are simple formulas to calculate. There's mathematical formulas to calculate, but that is normal stamp duties like GST. Like when you buy something, you got to pay some tax. Okay. So that's normal. But in the year 2012, due to extreme demand and house price of houses rising at too fast a rate, the government implemented many cooling measures. They call it cooling measures. So one of them was ABSD. So buyer stamp duty is a normal stamp duty. Additional buyer stamp duty is for your second house. 
Why is this implemented and the logic behind it? Every Singaporean, the government wants you to own a house. So they are going to charge you normal stamp duties only. But if you buy a second house, it means you are a well-to-do Singaporean that can afford a second property, right? So I'm going to tax <laughs> you a lot more. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's not that bad. Like, it's taxing the richer, okay? Okay. <laughs> But it, it's significant. Uh. Today, uh, my first property, zero. Okay, normal stamp duty. Uh. My second mm. property, normal stamp duty plus 12%. If I buy a $1 million next property, it means I got to pay $120,000 more. Mm, okay. Yeah. And you can't own two HGBs. Uh, so your normal second, normally your second property has to be a private, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot more. And so only... If you are affluent, rich enough, then you buy your second one. Ah. And when you can buy the second one, you got to pay 12% more. And that's ABSD. So, how do you avoid ABSD? Okay, everything that they say on these advertisements are technically sound. Okay. But may not be financially sound. Okay? Technically sound because they cannot say things which are not doable. They mm. are doable. For example, if me and my wife owns one property today yeah. and we want to buy a second property and avoid paying the 12%, what happens is that I sell my share of my property to my wife. So she owns one and I own nothing. Then I mm. go and buy a second one without paying ABSD. Yeah. Or I start a company and I use a company to buy a house mm. and pay GST of 7%. Not 12%, I still save money. Ma. Yeah. Right? So there are methods to do this. And they say, and because of people having higher income and stuff like that, they can take the loans, right? You know, the first question, how much loan you can borrow? So they can take the loans. Mm-hmm. The problem is, it's always going to stress the third question, which is, do you have, are you comfortable with the monthly installment? So these companies out there that is telling you you can buy, you can afford it, is because they say, look, if you look at the rental you every month, right? this amount of rental will cover your mortgage installments. Yep. Which again, technically is not wrong if you get a tenant. Mm. But if you don't get a tenant, who suffers? The owner. Mm. So there's a lot of risk involved. And the person advertising this to entice you to buy one, he actually earns the commission from you buying a new one. And whether you can get a tenant or not in the future is not his business already. So there is risk involved in every investment. If this works out in your life, you will actually very quickly own two properties and get passive income in the further future. But if it doesn't work out, you will be riddled in debt. These things cut both ways. Oh, so that's how that's how they work. Okay. I was like thinking myself, oh, could it be like they find someone else who doesn't own a property and then everyone kind of like help pay towards the monthly installment, but somewhere along the line they have like a and you know they have like an unwritten contract where they go like okay when we rent out this place you know everybody will split the rental. Uh, the one possible among friends are uh, not advertised like that. <laughs> so is refinancing your mortgage an inevitability? I mean, you are you know running a mortgage advi- advisory business. And basically, you know, you talk. We know earlier we talked about how even after the first three years, if let's say you're taking yeah. the fixed rate, 
you yeah. know, the bank will adjust the rate and you will find yourself paying more back monthly to the bank. So does that mean that refinancing is something that you definitely will have to do as long as you own a property in Singapore? Um, 90% of the time is true. So ex- exactly as you said, a fixed rate is not forever. The floating mm-hmm. rate will come. Even yep. if you start with a floating rate, floating rate can be very low today, but it can be very high next time. Like Sora rates are 1%, 1% today, but just three years ago, that same exact rate was 2.5%. So you will have to refinance. And if you want to capture the correct terms of the market, sometimes you take floating rates because it's the time for lowness, uh, for low interest rate environment. And then sometimes you take fixed rates because high interest rate environment is coming. Let's lock in a decent maybe 1.8 for the next three years first, go past the 2.5s when it comes back down, then go back to floating again. So you have to, if you want to save the most money or in a sense, uh, don't overpay on your mortgage, refinancing always happens. But Hmm. there are a certain group of people who can't refinance or it's not worth it to refinance because if your HGB is above 300k on your private property loan is above 500k, the new bank who you refinance to will pay most of the cost for you. But if your loan gets smaller, the cost is not covered by the new bank. And it's just sometimes the cost is higher than your savings in interest rates. So what do you do then? Uh, you actually can do two things. One is go back to your current bank and ask them to reprice. means give you a new package. It will not be the best package in the world, but at least you are going to save a little bit of money. Or when you know your loan is going to drop below those benchmarks for 500k for private and 300k for HDB, mm. you get... A package that is very stable. It will never be the lowest package, but it will never be the highest package. You get a very stable package that averages out 1.8% over the next 20 years or five years, whatever, right? So that you don't have to refinance anymore because you can't do it anymore. So you cannot play the game where when it goes to 1%, I take. When it goes to 2.5, I take 1.8. Then I change again. When it goes down to 1%, I take the 1%. That game should be played to save the most money. But when your loan becomes too small, then you don't pay this game. You take the a rate that is forever 1.6 average. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's really good advice because my current loan is less than 300k for HDB. Really? <laughs> so let's have a call later. <laughs> okay, sure. So, you know, I think there is a question that's weighing on a lot of people's mind, especially like, you know, people in our age group, late 30s, early 40s, right? And we're thinking... Should we get that second property or should we buy upgrade to an to a more expensive property, especially after you know you turn 45, the terms of your mortgage is also slightly different, right? Yeah, so yeah. for instance, when when it comes to situations like that, what is the ideal end game for regular Singaporeans when it comes to property? And after a certain age, does it mean that you shouldn't even consider buying a property? You should just be happy with where you're staying or for instance, sell your current property and just rent for the rest of your life? I don't know. So many creative solutions I can think of every time I walk my dog around the neighborhood. <laughs> but like, what is the end game here? And how how should we best think about these things holistically and, you know, from a retirement angle or you know, yeah. things like that? Mm. Um, interesting. So again, we go back to the needs and wants of people. Lah. So the, everybody have different needs and wants. So um, if you have a family, normally it's about retirement and legacy, meaning you, you give your house to your kids. Mm. If you are single or you don't have kids, it's normally about just retirement. And I want to live a happy life financially and comfortably. 
So again, financially, how much is financially comfortable differs from people to person to person. What is comfortable? Some people want a big house. Some people don't mind staying in a very small place because it doesn't matter to them. So again, that differs from person to person, right? So I will just give you a scenario. In my life, I'm conservative, but I feel that at this moment when I have two children and they are really young and run around a lot because they are boys and they are too active, I want a bigger place. But the end game for me is hopefully I can own two to three properties fully Mm -hmm. paid by 65 so I can retire and live on rental income. So this is Mm. my scenario. But I have a friend, his scenario is he doesn't want to invest in property. He wants to invest in the stock market, the share market. He understands the risk. He's a finance professional. He said, what's the worst case scenario for him? His end game is in the worst case, in the, in the best case scenario, he becomes a millionaire from his investments. Okay? Yeah. In, in the worst case scenario is that he actually owns a $1.2 million a private property alone. He said, the worst case scenario, mm-hmm. at 65, if I have to retire, I sell the $1.2 million. Okay, use today's value, right? I sell the $1.2 million, yeah. I buy a 300k HDB, I have eight, 900,000 to, to retire for the next 20 years and then I put it in some bonds, earn 30, 40k a year. He can literally imagine that, that whole life, right? And, yeah. and I think that's fine as well. So scenarios, different people have different scenarios and I guess that's where there is mortgage experts and there is people like me like, who actually don't mm. just care about the financials. I care about, like, I will ask you these kind of more personal questions because then I can understand what you really want. Nice. <laughs> like, yeah, you get what I mean. La. Yeah. Okay. Well, David, thank you so much for spending this time uh, with us to talk about mortgages and talking about the property market, etc. Um, yeah, so I will definitely be reaching out to you soon to talk about <laughs> thank you. my mortgage and to talk about my property aspirations in Singapore. Um, thank you so much. Thank you once again for having me. Oh, yeah. And where can people um, look look you up? Uh, www.mortgagemaster.com.sg Excellent. Okay, yeah. cool. Thank you, David. Thank you. Bye-bye.